Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. I am your host, Adele Sage, joined as always by Angelina Jenis. Welcome, Angelina. Hey, Adele. This week on the CX Cast, where we cover all things experience, as you know, we have invited Shar Van Boskirk, a VP Principal Analyst at Forrester, to talk about our customer obsession research, because customer obsession is going to touch on all the different kinds of experience topics that we cover. So welcome, Shar. We are so excited to have you back on the podcast, one of our favorite guests. Thank you, Adele, Angelina. Great to be here. So please start out by telling us more about what customer obsession is and what Forrester's take on it is. So Forrester defines customer obsession as putting the customer at the center of your leadership, strategy, and operations. And this is a very specific definition. It's not just generally trying to be more customer-centric. It's a very specific definition about changing your leadership, your strategy, and your operations. And we've been very specific about it because we see it as a growth strategy. This is a way to help pivot your enterprise from having one set of characteristics, one set of attributes, one set of operating principles, to having something that might be completely different that leverages the customer as its foundation, as its center, and as the primary focus area that it revolves around. So because a lot of our audience is in CX, is it enough to say, deliver great customer experiences and therefore you're customer obsessed? So this is a great question and one that I have worked a lot this year on some new research to try to better explain. So when I think about customer obsession, the sort of most common response that I get from companies is exactly what you said. Is this just about being nicer to customers? And the response that I would make is think of customer obsession in the same way that you think of any business school framework like Porter's Five Forces, where it's not a checklist. It's not like a project that you do. And then once you do it, magically your business is all set. Customer obsession is a way of looking at every decision that you make within the firm so that you are deliberately making decisions that will put the customer at the center and by having the customer at the center will drive growth. So if I think about your question in a little bit more detail, Angelina, I tell companies that if you just say, be more customer-centric or be nicer to customers or amp up your customer service, what within the rest of the company changes? That sounds to me like you could always point to someone and be like, well, it's their job, not mine. Or this is something that once we fix our customer service, then we'll be all set. This is about figuring out how every employee at the firm relates to every other employee at the firm to drive a specific vision that you have come up with, which is your expression of customer obsession. So are there any companies that don't need to bother being customer obsessed? Does this apply to everybody or only to categories of companies or specific companies? Another very good question. So it is true that customer obsession affects everyone, that this idea of being more customer-centered, more with the customer at the center applies to every business. However, I'm a very practical sort, and it is not realistic to presume that every company will approach this in the same way, should approach this in the same way, or even have the same destination in mind of where they're trying to go. 
So we've created some research to help companies figure out their sweet spot. And basically, it depends on two primary factors. The first is how empowered your customers are. So if you are a company that has very empowered customers, and I should say, this is not a hypothetical estimation. This isn't just generally, well, we think our folks are empowered. Forrester can actually determine quantitatively how empowered your customers are. So how empowered your customers are. And then the second dimension is how much competition you have in your business. And this is your direct competition. So companies that are competing against you for the same exact business. But this could also be adjacent competitors, companies that have introduced a new expectation for service or delivery models or product expectations, that if you have a lot of competition and highly empowered customers, then you have to be the most mature with customer obsession. If you have maybe less empowered customers or less competitive space, then you could see yourself not having to go as far, not having to be as customer obsessed as a company that had more extremes on those two dimensions. So I mention all of that not as an excuse. This isn't sort of a like get out of customer obsession card, rather as a practical guide so that you can be quite realistic about what do my customers want? You don't want to waste money chasing a level of engagement with your customers that they don't need. My example here is CenturyLink, great example of a utility that for years has tried very much to focus on the customer as a way to drive more organic growth. They did a lot of research using voice of the customer data to determine what their customers wanted because frankly, they could not afford to offer Amazon, Zappos, Ritz-Carlton-like customer service. Well, and it turns out their customers don't expect that level of service. That's not what their customers wanted. What their customers wanted from them as a utility company, as a telecoms company, was reliability. Just don't ever let my Wi-Fi not be on. When you say you're going to show up, show up. So the reality of the way that they can be customer-obsessed was actually much more affordable to them, much more in line with their strengths and with their brand promise, and was actually going to deliver the value that their customers cared about and wanted. This is really intriguing to me because I feel like a lot of companies went through this phase of trying to be very focused on innovation and innovating new ways to meet customer needs. And a lot of it didn't have ROI. It was falling flat. It's just be more like Apple. Is that what you mean? Because yeah. I feel like I've heard that a million times. Like, oh, how do I get like an all white store and, you know, geniuses? Right. And it's clearly not a one size fits all sort of thing to be customer obsessed. So I'll tell you just an interesting little anecdote from some of our data, from some of our quantitative research in this space. We did a big quant study about a thousand different enterprise companies. And from that data, we're able to sort companies into five levels of maturity. And the fourth level of maturity, so one click down from being customer obsessed, it's a group we call customer committed. These companies actually significantly overspend on customer experience. So what this says to me is that they've almost swung too far to the side of giving our customers what they want, giving in to customer whims. And they haven't done this balance of, okay, let's look at what our customers value and 
what we are good at, what is in line with what we stand for, what we can productively deliver against. And making that balance, I actually think is harder than just living on one side or the other. So interesting to your points of we just have to be like Apple. I think that that's the stage that companies move through as they're moving into this more honest and realistic understanding of what customer obsession means for them. And the result is that they overspend. That's fascinating. So what, if anything, has the pandemic done to affect companies' pursuit of customer obsession? So I think there are two observations that I will make from the pandemic on all of this. The first is that it has proven out that companies that have a better focus on their customers have managed to come through the pandemic more smoothly. Now, it doesn't just mean, again, that being nicer to the customer somehow magically saved you in the pandemic, but companies that had a solid understanding of what their customers needed and how those needs were changing were able to respond to the pandemic faster, more readily, and in a way that actually continued to provide value and business growth for them. So the couple of examples that come to mind here are Enterprise Holdings, which is the parent organization for Alamo National Enterprise Rental Car. They had already begun a digital investment, but it became quite clear at the beginning of the pandemic that they needed to accelerate that investment. They didn't really have a digital footprint. What they had was a bit of a bookings engine. So they accelerated their entire digital effort to allow for a contactless car reservation system and also a pickup and drop-off system that in some way would continue to communicate the high-touch service that the enterprise brands were known for. And it managed to keep their business solvent when their competitors, frankly, were going belly up. So what it allowed was for them to introduce a new orientation around car rental, that just because people weren't traveling by air and there wasn't a lot of traffic coming through airports, you could, in fact, rent a car and do a weekend trip together with your family and still manage to be social distanced and appropriately safe from other crowds. So a great example of using their understanding of the customer to drive an investment in a specific area that then allowed them to sustain their business and frankly outcompete companies that couldn't understand what their customer needed. I think the second thing that the pandemic has illustrated is that there's been an exceptional focus on things that matter more. So what I mean there is that I had a marketer say to me, when the house is on fire, it becomes very clear that the priority is to put the fire out. And I think what the pandemic did is it shone a very bright spotlight on things that maybe had taken the back burner at a lot of companies when there were other noise and other priorities to potentially invest in. And so what I've seen is companies amping up their focus on being more customer-centric and quickly figuring out how to come together to solve customer problems, where if it had been a different climate where things were less urgent and obvious, that potentially could have taken a number of years. So I'll give you a couple of examples there. John Lewis in the UK has just introduced its hyper-local stores. Now, maybe they would have come to a different model anyway over the course of several years, but this has introduced a completely different store and delivery model for them. 
where instead of having giant department stores, they're going to have local stores that are on street corners so they can better service people who are working from home. The stores will have almost a general store sort of feel where they'll have office supplies, but they'll also do things like have printing services, have package pickup and drop-off services. So you could outsource some of your home office requirements to John Lewis. Another example is King Arthur Flower, an example of a company that is very customer-centric pre-pandemic and has a good handle on who their customers are. Their call centers vary in touch with offering not just regular service, but guidance around recipes and sort of working with families to make enjoyable products off of the King Arthur flower. Well, at the beginning of the pandemic and associated shutdown, King Arthur flower, like many flower brands, couldn't keep flower on the shelves. And because they were customer centric, they weren't okay with that. This wasn't just like, let's make more money. It was like, how do we better service our families who right now need this product from us? So they actually repurposed some of the folks in their retail stores that were closed into their call centers. So they had more people on call answering questions about their supply. They also worked with college kids that were furloughed out of the mill science program in Kansas State to come and figure out from partner mills how to come up with new ways to package King Arthur flour on partner mill production lines. So it changed the entire packaging model. It changed the way that they mill and produce and distribute flour, but they did it because they were trying to solve the problem of the customer and nurturing the relationships that they've built over the history of the company with their partner ecosystem, their educational resources that are pipelining young talent into their organization, and by working with their employees to repurpose them into places where their skills could still be valuable to the firm. There are so many themes that stand out in these examples. There's having a deep understanding of your customer, having a deep understanding of your workforce, and then also agility keeps coming up. Any other themes across these examples that you see that really exemplify customer obsession? I think there are two others that we don't talk about as much. One is about willingness to invest. And again, I'm super practical. So this isn't just throwing money at this thing. I try to help companies be very judicious about what they're spending. But there is in all of these examples, a willingness to invest in doing right by the customer. That in all my experience studying customer obsession, cost savings is never the way to growth. And if that is the strategy, that won't work. So that's worth talking about. It's worth noticing that McDonald's, that Enterprise, these companies were investing in the digital infrastructure that allowed them to be more agile and more flexible and able to respond when customers' needs changed. And then I think the second thing that's worth talking about is leadership, that there is in every one of these examples a leader that was willing to invest, that was willing to say, I actually think we might pursue different from the status quo and that it is more risky for us to continue to do things business as usual than for us to try something different and perhaps better service our customers in that way. I know this goes back to an example you gave quite a while ago, but it it also makes me laugh that right now you can't even get a rental car in a lot of places, right? They've done such a good job and understood that that might be the first 
place where people would feel comfortable with travel is renting cars and driving places or more domestic travel that then resulted in a need for car rentals. Yes, for sure. And I think what I like so much about that enterprise example is that they invested in digital, good for them, but they used digital to continue the experience that they were known for offline. That it wasn't just how do we offload the car pickup process, but rather we are known for being the company that picks you up. We are known for being a high-touch car service, a high-touch brand. How can we manage for that in a contactless environment? If a company is already customer-obsessed, where do you go from there? What advice are you giving those kinds of companies that are already at that top tier? Yeah, that's a great question because I think it's not intuitive. I think a lot of people feel like they get there and then they think they've checked it off and then they're like, well, all set. And this is actually about, there are so many opportunities. Customer-obsessed companies, I've sort of made this point that companies should align their business strengths and their brand with what their customers want. And that intersection is where you become customer-obsessed. However, there is also something magical that happens with customer-obsessed companies where they are so good at that intersection that they can actually stretch the fabric of their brand. So this is examples of Starbucks and Chick-fil-A running COVID vaccination sites where ordinarily you would think that's super off-brand. Why are they moving into a space that isn't in line with their core business proposition? And the response is their core business proposition is so strong as being a company that's good at the things that they're known for, at the way that they service their customers, that it actually made sense to take that and apply it into a different situation. Another example would be HEB, which is a grocery chain in Texas, where their whole orientation is about being Texas proud. And they have this brand associated with it. They have an in-store experience associated with it. They have an employee experience associated with it. And they are a grocery chain, but they also have things like an emergency supply bus that when Texas is hit by natural disasters, the Red Cross is out there too, but so is HEB. And they're driving around with laundry facilities and emergency water supplies because that's what it means for them to be customer obsessed, to be Texas proud. And in the pandemic, they had their corporate folks who would actually work in the warehouse. They would stock shelves in stores. They would work behind the cash register, not just so that they had more people and could be open more hours to sell more stuff, but because that was the right thing to do, to give their employees a break, to show that they too were going to shoulder the demand of the run on supplies. And they offered free food to all of their employees. So there's something about that, which is like, yeah, figure out the right intersection so that you're not overspending to be the wrong version of yourself. And yet, once you are customer obsessed, we tell companies to stretch, not tear the fabric of their brand. And that that's where they'll find growth opportunities. And that's also where they'll find the true and authentic self that the brand stands for. And we've seen this happen with Amazon. Amazon now has permission to be in so many different businesses because they were so exceptional at the balance of what they were good at, who they were, 
and how they were creating value for their customers. You've given a lot of examples of brands that you're saying are doing great customer obsessed work, but I'm sure there are people out there who've had bad experiences with those brands. They're not necessarily perfect. So how do you balance sort of overall being customer obsessed, but knowing that it's not going to be perfect every time? So there are a few dimensions in a business that customer obsession amplifies. It amplifies your customer goodwill. It amplifies your employee engagement and it amplifies your revenue. So what that means is that customer obsession itself doesn't make up for a good and valid business model. We're assuming that you've done some work to figure out that you're offering a good or a service that the market wants and that you've figured out a good way to create, distribute, and sell that good or service. What customer obsession does is it amplifies that. It actually makes it better. It makes it more efficient. It makes you able to retain employees less expensively, acquire customers less expensively, upsell those customers because they are so engaged with the products that they use. It also helps you bank goodwill. So it gives you permission to make a mistake, to try new things, to innovate in areas and see what your customers think. So this notion of customer obsession, I keep sort of saying it's not just a checklist. This isn't just a project that you think, well, we fixed XYZ interaction with our customer. We're all good. This is about figuring out how to change the business so that you are amplifying all of these different connections to the market, to your employees, and to your customers. And then good things come out of that. They seep out of that. So I think there's a question about where to start if you are trying to become customer obsessed. And this will also speak to your point, Adele, that first of all, I tell companies there's no wrong place to start. If you're thinking, well, I'll just wait until we have more budget or until we have a head of CX or until we have you know, an executive that can sponsor this, don't wait because it will always be hard. And the longer you wait, the more you have competition on that Y axis that's going to get in your way and make it harder for you to have any sort of advantage. So starting at whatever point you are at is the right idea. Now, one of the most important things to do to help you become customer obsessed is to figure out your right expression of customer obsession. This is that point that not everybody has to be the Ritz-Carlton. Not everybody has to be Amazon. There can be something for you that is the right thing based on what you're good at and what your customers value. Forrester has research here. We say there's three, count on us, at your service, and on your side, that you can choose one of those three, and then that becomes the guiding principle around which you are working to grow. What about your products has to change in order for your expression to become reality? What about the way you goal your teams has to change? It'll make more clear what the specific priorities should be on a day-to-day basis of all of the staff that you're working with. Now, what that means is that there might be moments where a particular customer experience still is being worked through because you have a longer-term vision of where you're trying to go. For us, count on us means that we will be reliable, we will always be on, we will always be on time. That will define for us what some of our SLAs should be, what some of our customer interactions should be, what some of our employee experiences should be. And then we will work to make those things help us be count on us. 
Thanks, Shar, for joining us to talk about customer obsession. Thank you. It was great to be here. Of course. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the CX Cast, your source for all things experience and customer obsession. Until next time.